This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good morning, everybody. Today it is May 30th, Tuesday. Just returning back from the long Memorial Day weekends. Um, a lot's happened over the weekend, especially in regards to the debt ceiling. Last few days since our last podcast, the S&P has certainly been on somewhat of a tear. Um, I mean, we'll see. Chart analysts will see, say there may be a market correction coming after temporary debt ceiling deal. Who knows? But certainly there seems to be some euphoria right now. So, like, Tim, let's get into that. Yeah. Euphoria is the right word. Uh, and we were talking before we started, you know, look, I, my call on the debt ceiling and I wrote an essay about it last week, uh, or at least partially about it. I said, look, they'll get it done, but I think it's going to go into June with some acrimony and it got done much less contentiously, if that's a word than, than I would have guessed. I, I really thought that the freedom caucus you know, you heard Matt Gates say, why are we negotiating with the hostage? Like, I thought that whole Freedom mm -hmm. Caucus was going to be a lot more muscular and really try to control the outcome for McCarthy. And yet here we sit uh, Tuesday morning and, uh, you know, they signed off. They, the Freedom Caucus didn't necessarily sign off on the deal. All these guys are going to vote against it. Uh, but still, they're not going to block it. They're not going to do anything, it would appear. And, you know, when they're negotiating, they know they've already done the whip count. People talk about the whip count is going on right now. They had the whip count going on when they were negotiating. They weren't negotiating to something they weren't sure if they could get passed, right? Majority leaders and House speakers don't bring yeah. anything to the floor until they know they've got the vote. It's like a lawyer doesn't ask a question he doesn't know the answer to. Um, but now, there could be some risk today uh, as it goes through the Rules Committee, but it sounds like the swing vote on that is Thomas Massey from Kentucky, who is super, super conservative, but he's basically said, I'm not going to hold it up. So you'll get through that. Uh, I do think that they've got the whip count done. There's a couple senators on the right that are arguing they're going to make things tough. Mike Lee from Utah is saying he's going to try to do some procedural things to slow things down. Lindsey Graham is pissed that there's not more uh, growth in defense spending. Uh, some things never change. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, they're going to get this done. There, there are going to be those people in the House that are in conservative districts that could only lose uh, if, if in, a, in a primary, and those people will vote against it, and they'll scream and yell about it. But that's theater. This whole thing has been kabuki theater. As we've talked about on this podcast, if you're not talking about cutting defense, you're not talking about cutting Social Security and Medicare, this is all kabuki theater. Uh, and ultimately, coming out of it, the analysis that I've said is seen is that, you know, there is maybe a modicum of slower spending and therefore some slower growth. Maybe the drag to GDP or GDI is is kind of 10 to 40 bips. You'll start the student loan repayments again here pretty soon. That's maybe estimated to be 10 to 20 bips of drag. So it's meaningful for an economy that's only growing at around 1%, or if you look at GDI, not at all. Um, but ultimately, this came out to a much more benign resolution than I thought it would. No, it certainly did for me, too. Um, There's a little bit of cuts on the IRS. They obviously scaled back some COVID on use spending as that goes. Work requirements moved from 50 years old to 54. 
But like you said, they're very small cosmetic changes. Um, I was also shocked that they're going to keep things solvent for all 2025. So we're not going to have to go through this exercise again during election year, which yeah. is um, great, you know, for everyone's sanity. But interesting political move if I was, you know, uh, Speaker McCarthy. Yeah. And overall, that you know, that was a demand of the White House. That was kind of another thing that they won. Uh, I just I, I really wonder, you know, there were some CNN polls last week that kind of scared me on this that said 60 percent of Americans said, don't raise the debt ceiling without cutting spending. Uh, and I thought that that would empower the Republicans. But it looks like looking at it from the outside that they didn't think that this was a political winner. If they thought this was more of a political winner to shut down the government, that's exactly what they would have done. But whatever the consultants are and the pollsters are that are that they're talking to gave them the impression that nah, this isn't this isn't where we want to really uh, you know, have the have the pivotal, pivotal battle of the war. Yeah, and that's why I think it'd be tough for things to fall apart at this late hour because yeah. McCarthy and Biden broke bread meaning that if it goes down, it's going to be on the GOP, whereas before yeah. it could be, it could have been on the president, right? So yeah, no, uh, I think it's all over, but the crying. You you yeah. know, you'll see some some freedom freedom caucus members get their their opposition in print so that they can then campaign on that. Same thing with Graham and 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 Mike Lee, but um, this is this is done. Mm. Um. So Vidya has been a real winner in this kind of thing. I think it hit a trillion market cap today. Uh, obviously, the breadth of the markets really hasn't been all that great, although I would argue it hasn't been all that terrible either. There's 16 healthcare stocks and some consumer staples that are making up 52-week uh, highs. But yeah, most of it's been tech, and NVIDIA has just been a huge, huge uh, portion of that gains, of those gains. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. And you know, I, I, I told you, I, I went down and I saw my mother and my brother this weekend. And my brother is a small newspaper publisher. He's not a Wall Street guy. He's not a stock trader or anything. And as soon as I landed, he looks at me and goes, man, I knew I should have bought NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was yeah. like, dude, you don't know anything about AI or NVIDIA. Like, but, you know, it's it's the George Soros theory of when I see a bubble forming, I jump in. You know, you better be a pretty damn good trader if you're getting long bubbles, though, because you don't know when the, you know, it's if these things tend to be escalator up, elevator down, and you don't know when the elevator's taken off to the downside. But it certainly feels bubbly to to me. Uh, NVIDIA trading it somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, 40 times revs and uh, a couple hundred times earnings. Um, you know, look, the semiconductor space is cyclical. I mean, if you look at semiconductor stock performance versus global PMIs, the correlation is high. Global PMIs are going lower. Europe is going lower. U.S. is going lower. The China recovery ain't happening. Exports to China from those countries that are super reliant on China, like Taiwan and South Korea, are down and down meaningfully. So, um, you know, the whole this the the AI craze, you know, calling when the bubble is going to top out is pretty damn hard. But I do think that you, when you look at the valuations that you're talking about. 
I get that there is going to be more demand for computing power, but I don't think anybody knows exactly how high the barriers to entry uh, to get bigger in the GPU market. How, how do we know how much pricing power uh, NVIDIA is going to have? How, how do we know uh, what AMD, Intel, other companies um, that are growing capacity in the space, what they might be able to do to innovate? Uh, so anytime you get valuations this high, there is a very high bar for what these companies better be able to achieve. And NVIDIA better be able to put up 30 and 40 times compounded growth on the top line and faster than that on the bottom line to justify this kind of valuation. And when global PMIs are going down, that would be an unprecedented achievement for a semiconductor company. Yeah, I mean, NVIDIA had a better than expected quarterly result this past week. Uh, I mean... Marvel Technology, AMD, a lot of people with exposure in AI went up. I wonder how much of it's just a temporary bump because going back to the debt ceiling, I mean, the CHIPS Act wasn't cut, infrastructure wasn't cut, the Inflation Reduction Act wasn't cut. Um, yep. all, all three things that obviously yep. in terms of investment spend would be good for a company like NVIDIA or all the rest of them. So, Yeah. Yeah. But you look at the overall economy. Industrials aren't doing well. Manufacturing mm -hmm. isn't doing well. Same can be said globally. Look, you see, you know, we the market opens this morning at 9:30, like it always does, and you know, S&P's up 100 basis points, Nasdaq's up 150 basis points, Nvidia's up six percent. Well, now it's 11:15. S&P's up 15 bips. The Dow is red. The Russell, of course, is red because it goes mm -hmm. down every day. It's only 2,000 stocks. Uh, and NASDAQ is still up 60 bips, and NVIDIA is still up 5.5%. Like, this crowding in, I, you know, you said breadth wasn't terrible. It's pretty bad. For a market that is this strong, for so few names to be participating is, uh, and look, I, you don't, there's not a lot of great data on what really poor, narrow breadth means to the market, um, but it suggests to me that a lot of this market is responding to the fact that we are going to be in a slower environment with stubborn inflationary environment. The rest, everything in the market is reflecting that with the exception of this small sliver of large cap tech. Mm -hmm. Um. What do you think about business activity? I mean, that grew the most in May in over a year. Uh, service demands somewhat of an expanded outlook in terms of global yeah. economic growth. Uh, what should we make of that? Well, it's services. It's not manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Manufacturing is is in contraction. Whether you look at any of the beige books, uh, you saw Kansas City, we saw Dallas, we saw uh, Philadelphia and New York. They're all weak. They're all red. So manufacturing is in a recession. And consumer spending is weakening. I mean, if you look at retail trends, uh, retail is softening. Uh, restaurant traffic is finally starting to soften. But the 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 sort of uh, experiential consumer part of the market, uh, travel, cruise lines, Vegas, Macau, uh, mm -hmm. all su all still super super strong. Look, we're just coming off of such extraordinary demand. When you you know it, it's the old ten billion dollars of stimulus. I'm sorry, ten trillion dollars of stimulus. It's just going to take a long time to work its way through the system, and that is still happening. 
but excess savings are getting worked down uh, and you and and the trend and you can see it in the most recent credit card data which is running below 2022 levels in retail the trend is weak look at look at the XRT look at the retail index it's red it's down for the year uh, so there is not uh, you know um, I don't know. The, the ISM 54 on services kind of surprised me, but it does stand out relative to the preponderance of of the data elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Coming on the 100th trading day of the year, uh, well, that was Thursday, I should say. Um, this is all kind of history and technical stuff, but the S&P rallies more than 7% the first 100 days on average. If you go back to 1950, the index would rally another roughly nine and a half over the balance of the year. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we've discussed this before. Uh, yeah. You know, doesn't history, you know, doesn't repeat itself. It might rhyme. What do you think of the 100 yeah, trading days? Yeah, I, I just, I, I don't care about that kind of data. Yeah. I'd rather look at it in terms of the cycle. And if mm -hmm. you look at it in terms of the cycle, don't forget, we, we started around the lows for the S&P. We started this year around the lows for the S&P. So, you know, it, 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 it's picking a specific point in time where we've done well. If you go back to kind of where we were in late 2021, you know, it looks like we've had a big massive counter trend rally looking at the market broadly, all of S&P, all of Russell, et cetera. So I, I just those kind of stats, uh, those kind of historical technology, they, they seem like you're trying to uh, or investors are trying to find a narrative to justify an outcome. I, I just look, the market's usually up. Right. Mm -hmm. So if the market is tends to be up a lot in the first half of the year, it's up in the back half of the year as well. I just don't think that that is enough data or enough. It, it informs you of the mm -hmm. fundamentals of the market and of the economy uh, in a way that you really want to have uh, before making investments. I just, I, you know, I, I, I don't I don't care about those kind of long term stats. Yeah, sure. Global energy investment seems to have um, gone up quite a bit in terms of it's slated to hit 2.8 trillion in 2023 um, when we're looking at the IEA, uh, you know, and then 1.7 trillion of that's going to go to clean tech, EVs, renewable storage. Yeah. Um, I mean, your position has long been we're in massive energy underinvestment. Yeah. Do these numbers change your mind or do you still think uh, or I mean, not yeah. maybe in kind of a short term. No, I mean, remember the EIA tells us that we got to be at five trillion in order to wow. get to uh, net zero 2050, which is the goal that you'd have to reach in order to, they think, limit uh, warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade, uh, which many think is a tipping point. Um, you need to be at, they, they estimate you need to be at five trillion. So we're nowhere near that ballpark. The, as you say, the, the investment is getting bigger in energy transition than it is in traditional energy. Mm -hmm. And my thesis is that that spending is the lack of spending in traditional energy is the core problem. The underinvestment issue that we have is on the traditional energy side. Yeah. Uh, and it's a lack of investment in downstream infrastructure, in refineries and so forth, but also in growing resources. And it is, you know, for the first time ever, uh, not only as you, as you cited, is energy transition capex higher than in traditional energy, but return of cash in traditional energy through buybacks and, um, and, and uh, dividends is higher than capex. So 
and 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 I, I can promise you that as you listen to all the conference calls of the traditional energy companies, the mantra is going to be the same. We're going to be disciplined. We're going to return crack. We're going to return cash. And now with a, with global weak demand, and don't don't forget, U.S. diesel demand is really weak because mm-hmm. freight demand is really really weak. That doesn't tell you that the economy is bottoming out for sure. Uh, but global demand, the China recovery has really been a disappointment. China's not uh, really trying to stimulate the economy in a way that could generate real growth. And they've got a big debt problem. They've got an overinvestment uh, in real estate, an infrastructure problem. They've got a debt problem in, in China that they're trying to work their way through. And confidence is not returning uh, to the business sector and to the real estate sector. That is all creating a drag on demand. So when you look at oil at 70 bucks because demand is so weak, what do you see? You see the U.S. rig count making new lows. You know, uh, companies are going to be very, very sensitive to cut spending uh, in weak environments, and they're going to be very, very slow to increase spending in stronger environments. Because if they go out and they spend a lot of money in lieu of cash return, they're losing investors, and they might as well take their companies private because there's no point to being a public company uh, that's going to spend money on resources because the investors are going to flee. This is, I mean, kind of off topic, but you you brought up China and and what their debt servicing looks like. I'm curious. Do do you know uh, any like how in related to the Belt and Road Initiative, how they've been structuring debt with you know African countries, Central Asian countries? Like, are they going to have a servicing problem? Is there duration risk? You know, is it yeah. fixed rate, floating rate? Like, how how have they typically structured all this? You know, it's going to be interesting because it's all going to come down to the to the return on investment of those projects. If there's good return on investment of those projects, they'll probably get paid back on them. If there's really poor return on yeah. investment of those projects, they're not going to. Uh, and you already see, certainly in Africa, uh, a lot of turmoil around um, these debts and some pressure from these countries internally to try to restructure some of these debts. Because as of now, in a, in a low commodity environment like we're in right now because of weak global demand, um, uh, there's really low return. So you're going to have to restructure a lot of these debt. Uh, a lot of these debts. Yeah, I, I think the Belt and Road is probably a pretty good metaphor for the excess investment that China has done because you got low return on investment when you're building, you know, when you're building infrastructure and real estate uh, when it's not required, when it's not needed, when it's not demanded. Right. Um, and, and in terms of downturn, things like political risk increase in Africa. I mean, sure. you know, government of Sudan could fall, right? Uh, sure. So you have all those variables that seem to accelerate uh, once there's there's a global downturn. And you think about what can China do? I mean, what can you do? I mean, what are you, you going to invade a country? I mean, what are you, you sure. going to do yeah. Yeah. if these countries yeah. aren't in a, in a fiscal position to pay you back? I mean, no, Ghana, Ghana had always been one of the stronger economic players in Northern Africa, and they've had to restructure their debt. Yeah, and the same might be said of uh, Kenya and Tanzania, and you know, and we'll see. Um, yep. Because those are tourist-centric economies. So once global travel starts to collapse, uh, they're obviously getting less revenue as well. Yeah. 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 Um, anything we might have missed out, Tim? I, I know you kind of wanted to bring up employment numbers, so I think uh, yeah, it'd be a good time to open up discussion on that. 
You know, it's interesting from the, by the way, from the time we started talking, uh, S&P has gone red, Dow is down now, now down 50 basis points, NVIDIA is still up five and a half percent. I mean, it's like, yeah. it's like everybody is just crowding into whatever is left, wherever there's momentum. And, and, you know, we are in a market that is all about optimism right now. It is, it is still an incredibly optimistic retail investing environment. Um, and we'll see what it, what it takes to break that. You know, one of the one of the things I, I always say is pay attention to weekly claims because when weekly claims really meaningfully start going higher, that generally means that the market is the equity markets will follow that. Equity markets follow once a recession has already started. So I just don't buy the idea that um, we're off to the races. Uh, even if we do have uh, a recession in the economy, because the the street will look through that. I just I just disagree. They, the street has historically looked through downturns in the economy because you could expect really strong Fed intervention and quantitative easing. And when you have, and I'm now repeating myself of the mantra, which is sort of our macro mantra, when you have uh, the threat of higher inflation volatility, it makes it much less likely that the that the Fed can go out and print money every time the economy weakens. But specifically, we do get non-farm payrolls on Friday. Uh, you know, I think the important thing to watch is the revisions. Uh, there's some great data that was published in the last few weeks that shows just how sharp the revisions are to the non-farm payroll data late cycle. You have like in the last non-farm payroll data last month, we got 100, about 150,000 negative revisions. I think that's the kind of pace that you'll continue to see. Guessing the number for this month is harder than knowing that there, there's going to be significant revisions because that's what's happened uh, historically. Last week, we got an upside surprise on claims brought the four-week moving average down to around 4.30 or so. But a lot of other leading indicators of employment, like Jolts, like Challenger, uh, the conference board uh, data that was out this morning on the labor environment suggested that the there is some cracks below the surface in labor. Um, remember, we think that you're going to have long-term pressure uh, on labor, on, on on comp, and that's one of the reasons why we believe in this long-term inflation volatility. But cyclically, you're still going to have the same dynamics as you've always had. In a, in a weak labor environment, when non-farm payrolls are shedding jobs, when we're going through 250, when we're going through 300 on weekly claims, you are going to see a weaker labor market. There's no two ways about it. My point is that it it, it is going to be um, is going to be a just a big, get a bigger contribution of overall income uh, than it has historically, and that dynamic itself is inflationary. But yeah, the the interesting thing this week will be the labor data, uh, and I do think you'll continue to see a very slow but consistent weakening overall in the preponderance of the labor data. All right, awesome. Well, thanks for your time today, Tim. Uh, everybody, enjoy the duration of this short week, and we'll be back next week. And we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. 
Wealthfest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.